Uh, today's reading is from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from their, all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of Lent, and that's the season of the church when we're supposed to ponder and pray about uh, penitence and abstinence and the burden of our sins. And it's a rather gloomy season. I'm a bit of a rebel on this matter, and so I think is Pat. We both think the gloom can be overdone, especially in a spirit-filled church like St. Peter's, which is optimistic and prides itself in being a beacon of hope. But penitence and hope are not opposites. They're not spiritual rivals. In fact, they can be partners in getting us to the joyful destination of God's unfading love and full redemption, which should be the last line of our psalm. I chose this psalm this morning um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but one of them is that it has been for many years far and away my favorite psalm. And how it became my favorite psalm um, is a not unamusing story, um, which I'll tell you about. When I was serving 18 months in prison for perjury, I did a fair amount of Bible reading, Bible searching. And this particular psalm, which is called a penitential psalm, it's for people who have sinned, people who want to stop sinning, and it started to mean a great deal to me. And for various reasons, you'll hear, I hope, in a moment, it's full of remarkable riches. But, um, and I was almost a bit of a 130 psalm bore. I used to tell people uh, what a wonderful message it had for anyone who was in the depths. And just before I was being released from prison, suddenly the chaplain, who'd become a bit rather a good friend, said to me, look, um, can I invite you to uh, preach in the prison chapel next Sunday? And uh, this is rather an extraordinary request to ask a prisoner to preach. Um, well, I thought about it for a second, unaccustomed though I had become to public speaking. The old trooper in me said, well, I'll have a go. So I said, yes, all right, I'll, I'll try. And then I said, what shall I preach about? And he said, well, how about preaching about that psalm you're always banging on about, Psalm 130? Uh, so I said, fine. And so notices went up all over the prison. Sunday evening, 6.30 p.m., Jonathan Aitken will preach on Psalm 130. 
Now, this advertising had the effect of enlarging the congregation far beyond the usual Christian suspects. Instead of the half dozen or dozen or so rather bedraggled Sunday evening worshippers, when I got to the chapel that night, it was heaving like the tube in Russia, absolutely jam-packed. And this is a congregation who were not in a reverent mood at all. In fact, they were in a noisy, ribald mood, so much so that for a moment I thought I was back at Prime Minister's Questions. Uh, they were making so much noise. And then just when the whole thing started to get out of control, and I was extremely nervous by the volume of noise and catcalling and other sounds, um, suddenly the whole place fell to pin-drop silence. Why? Because they're barreled into the front row of the prison chapel, not a very usual visitor, a gentleman called the Big Face. Now, every prison has a big face. He's the sort of head honcho of the jail. He's usually done worse crimes than anybody else. He sort of runs the prison with a rather very dubious iron. And, but there he was, suddenly, in the front row of the stalls, as it were, accompanied by some burly minders, and everybody shut up completely. This made me only about 10 times more nervous. Um, I've now got a pretty silent chapel, and I thought I'd better say something. Um, and um, I said, uh, well, this, I'm going to talk about my favorite psalm, but it's not my, just my favorite psalm. I said, it was the favorite psalm of St. Augustine. It was the favorite psalm of Martin Luther. It was the famous favorite psalm of John Bunyan. And I saw the big face nodding gravely at this information, and I got going. Anyway, 10 or so minutes later, far from making any trouble, the big face was obviously rather moved. I could detect a trace or two of moisture in the corner of his eye. And when I'd finished, he came up to me and gave me a great bone-cracking handshake. Oh, Jono, that was beautiful, that there psalm of yours. I think he thought I'd written it. Uh, <laughs> And he then said, look, I've got a favor to ask you. Um, I've got a couple of my best mates, my old gang members, and they weren't able to be here tonight. But if you'd come over to my Peter, my cell on B-Wing, before you go, um, and you would say your piece all over again, I'm sure you'd get to their hearts just as you got to my heart tonight. There must have been something in my body language which made me seem as though I wasn't absolutely 100% enthusiastic about <laughs> spending an evening with a big face and two or three of his gangland colleagues. <laughs> but the big face was a very intuitive sort of guy, picked this up at once. And he saw, he said, and to make yourself feel at home, why don't you, when you come over, bring a couple of your best mates from A-Wing, um, so you'll have some company. He said, now then, how about bringing those geezers, you said, like the Psalms so much, Augustus and... <laughs> well, needless to say, I could not bring Augustine and Luther to... <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we did have an absolutely marvelous evening, me and the big face talking about this psalm. And why did we have such a good talk? The answer, because it's about being in the depths. And because being in the depths is an almost universal experience. And we, sooner or later, all go through something which we can identify as life's depths. Could be the breakup of our relationships. Could be family splits or divorces, financial dramas, 
bankruptcy, ruin, mental or physical breakdowns, depression, despair, bereavement, loss of a loved one, personal disaster, disgrace, getting vilified on social media by trolls, etc., etc., etc. These are depths which, sooner or later, somehow or other, many of us run into and encounter. Now, sometimes these depths are our fault. Sometimes they're not our fault at all. But sooner or later, there is a probability, life being what it is, that we will experience the depths. And if we do, I'm going to suggest to do, can't do much better than to turn to Psalm 130 and see what it tells us. Well, the opening verse, um, could we put the whole psalm up? Um, the opening verse goes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. O Lord, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Now, a cry or crying can mean tears, but it should always mean prayers, because a loving God longs to listen to our prayers, longs to respond to the requests we make to him. He does not always respond in the time scale we would like, and I'll come in a moment to the importance of patience in prayer. But even more important is perseverance in prayer. And if you're in the depths, one piece of advice is however long your quiet time is, triple it. Instead of a five-minute prayer time, give it 15 minutes because you're in the depths and you're making more of an effort. And if you're not much of a praying person, then give prayer a try because your first steps out of the depths should be to try and open up a channel of communication by crying to God or praying to him. Praying for what? Well, this depends what kind of depths you're in, I guess. If you are bereaved, pray for the one you have lost to be happy or at peace, whether he or she is. If you're praying because you're in an illness or a medical drama of your own, or for someone you love and care for, then pray to God to stretch out his healing hand and cure or ease the suffering. If you're in a broken relationship, pray for it to be healed. Pray for the pain to ease. Whatever you need, you think you need to get out of the depths, ask God for it in prayer. Just let me remind you of these great verses from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks find. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. But you have to take the first step of asking of seeking and knocking. Prayer, when you're in the depths, or for that matter, at any other time, is not a one-night stand in which you cry out for a single shot of magic which will move the earth and lift you out of the depth. No, prayer is a discipline, a far more slow and subtle spiritual experience of opening a channel to God by crying out or praying to him and listening to him and doing so with patience and with perseverance. Many of you will know the secular expression, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Spiritual wisdom so often turns it upside down, and the command should be, if you're in a hole, start praying. So if you're in the depths, pray, pray, pray. And then let's move to the second stanza. Yes, it's there. 
verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Well, now we're going much deeper into our journey with this verse as the uh, prayer or cry for mercy becomes a plea for forgiveness. The great 19th century Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, once said, these two verses contain the essence of all scripture. And he was right, because a journey out of the depths should often begin by spring cleaning the depths of our own rather messy, sinful lives. As this psalm reminds us, none of us can stand before God in self-justification, but he's always ready to offer us his forgiveness and to rush out and to run to us to do so, as he did with the parable, son, the parable of the prodigal son. You, many of you are familiar with it, but to my mind, the most exciting line in the parable of the prodigal son is when the father saw the prodigal son a long way off. He ran to him. And that's what God does with the generosity. And the line in the psalm goes on, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Does that word fear strike a jarring note? It really shouldn't. Fear in this context is not a scaredy cat word. It should not be interpreted as a sort of frightened, alarmed response. It should be treated as a respectful and even a response of reverence because a God who is going to lift us out of our depths and forgive us our sins deserves our utmost respect and reverence. And then we go on to the next verses, five and six. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman wait for the morning more than the watchman wait for the morning. And I think these verses are the most challenging part of the psalm in some ways, because they're all about patience, and that is a most underrated spiritual virtue. We live in a 21st century world of impatience. We get cross if we don't get online immediately. We like to hit our targets or arrive at our destinations early, ahead of schedule. We want to achieve our ambitions young, and we want to score our goals, whether they are romantic, financial, or personal, at once, if not sooner. But real life isn't work like that, and certainly not in God's kingdom. It's more like the old Simon Garfunkel song, slow down, you're going too fast. Got to make the morning last. Because only in the soft option world of synthetic spirituality uh, an instant salvation is the process of receiving God's forgiveness and restoring fellowship with him a quick fix. We will almost certainly have to wait to climb out of our depths. And how and why we wait for God's will to be done are two very profound issues which we need to resolve in our journey out of the depths. The psalmist here, the author suggests that while we wait we should put our hope in God's word. And his word here means his commandments, his teachings, and they are to be found in the Bible. And on almost every in the depths experience, they are reassuring teachings. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Bereavement hurts. It's painful. It's an agonizing, in-the-depths experience. I know because I lost my beloved wife, Elizabeth, just 10 months ago, and I continue to mourn her deeply and often visit her grave. But God does keep his promises. He tempers his wind to the shorn lambs. He comforts those that mourn. And 10 months after her death, I found my grief for Elizabeth being eased by my gratitude for Elizabeth. And as she rather bossily said from her deathbed, almost her last words, your life must go on. And it has, not least here at St. Peter's. So my depths are bottoming out, as they do, for everyone who asks for and receives God's help. But even so, that ingredient of patience and patient waiting in the depths is important to understand. And the seventh verse of the psalm may seem a little obscure with its 2,500-year-old rustic imagery of watchmen waiting for the morning. But there's a point here. When the Hebrew poets who wrote the psalms really wanted to bang home a point, they used a poetic device which scholars call parallelism, or what you and I would call double repetition. And hence the twice-over refrain here of more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. You have to be doubly patient in the depth. Many of you will be familiar with the expression, it's darkest before the dawn. And human depths are often at their worst just before dawn breaks and hope begins. Let me illustrate to you with this, uh, perhaps <coughs> an example. For a brief period in my life in the 1960s, I was a war correspondent in Vietnam. And in war, whether it's today's Kiev or yesterday's Vietnam, in military terms, the hour or hours before the dawn breaks and daylight comes can be really testing, really scary. And I remember time and time again when I was on a, I was on a patrol with the US Marine Corps or trying to sleep in a foxhole on some absurd military outpost we were defending, Hill 42752 near Khe Sanh, we all knew from bitter experience that the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese Army would use that just before dawn darkness to attempt a raid or a mortar attack. So you longed, and I really mean longed, to, like those Israelite watchmen longed, for the morning to come. Now you will discover, if you stay close to God in the depths, through prayer, through penitence, through spiritual discipline, that a new dawn will come, as indeed the final verses of this psalm promises. And this final stanza of the psalm should lift our hearts, because what it says is that after going through the Lord's tests of being in the depths, and gradually, and with difficulty, finding out about praying, forgiving and being forgiven, hoping, trusting, and waiting patiently, then the people of God addressed here as Israel, but actually it means you, me, and our neighbors, are promised. And I quote, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. In the exquisitely beautiful Coverdale translation of the Psalms, the last line is plenteous redemption, but it's the same thing. What does that mean, God's unfailing love? and full redemption. Well, we can have a pretty good imaginative shot at it on our own. 
but I think it might mean this morning a liberation from Lenten gloom, a release from our preoccupation, if we're there, with the sadness and misery of being in the depths. And instead, we should gratefully accept the peace and love of God that we are offered by this psalm and throughout the teachings of the gospel. What a change, what a reward. I think if you find yourself praying the psalm over and over again, if you ever get into the depths, then you will find, as I did, that its guidance is right and that its promises are true. Amen. <laughs>